Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. Now, we have Dmitry Medvedev, and there's sort of two parts to this. But we have Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy head of the Russian Security Council, saying that conflict with the West could last for decades. He says, quote, Our goal is simple, to eliminate the threat of Ukraine's membership in NATO. And we will achieve it one way or another. End quote. He also says that given NATO's rule about not admitting countries entangled in territorial conflicts, he also said that Ukraine could become, uh, that the war with Ukraine could become permanent. Uh, so ex- uh, he would, he says that it's a possibility that Russia ends up exploiting that um, habit of NATO to not include members who have border disputes and essentially just keeping the war going uh, per- perpetually so that Ukraine can never enter NATO. And perhaps um, uh, it'll go a very different way than what is being imagined. I say perhaps, but I'm fairly certain that it's not going to go the way that people are imagining. Because when people today imagine a freeze to the conflict, and I, that, that's the new favorite word, we're going to freeze the conflict, they imagine that we're going to keep the borders where they are right now, where Russia has the land to Crimea, and they own the south, almost the entirety of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline, and then Ukraine keeps the rest. You know, That's how they think that this conflict is going to be frozen. That is not how this is going to be frozen, unless Ukraine sues for peace today. It's not. And nobody in the United States or in Europe is going to force them to. So what's going to end up happening instead is Russia is going to push westwards. Now, there's a lot of pressure being put on Putin by the military and by the hawks who want to wrap this up and by the Russian citizenry, quite frankly. They, they're they ready. They, they want to see the fireworks, so to speak. But what's more likely to happen, at least in the initial stages of the Russian backbreaker offensive, which is what I'm calling it, and it will break Ukraine's back, is that they're going to move slowly and methodically, and you're going to see Russia grinding Ukraine from multiple axes. A few weeks ago, the Russians, Putin specifically said that they will open up a new axis of attack in Ukraine. Now, that could be up towards Kiev. That could be over uh, on the border with Poland, you know, where Ukraine's border meets Poland. They could send in a force from Belarus that comes in from there. It could just be a force that comes in from Belograd to attack Kharkov and essentially threatening the flank of the Ukrainian military in a way that prevents them from doing more of those commando raids into Belgorod like they did again about a month ago and where they sent in like 70 dudes and lost half the force in a day and a whole bunch of military equipment. This was right before the counteroffensive began. So it's more likely that they'll do that and just slowly grind their way through Ukraine, just like how they did in Bakhmut, or actually really around Bakhmut, because when you saw the map of Bakhmut, you see the front line went past the city and that there was this narrow corridor going into Bakhmut where the Russians could just hit you with artillery with impunity and there was nothing you could do about it. You just, you had to take the, figuratively and literally, you had to bite the bullet uh, if you wanted to get in or out of the city. It's more likely that we're going to see an offensive like that, just that the Ukrainians are going to be increasingly incapable 
of doing anything about it, especially if the Russians start opening up new front lines. Because up till now, the war hasn't been very active in the north. And we saw why the Russians pulled out as a part of that draft treaty that the Ukrainian delegation initialed, that they said uh, that they signed on to, and then walked away from. And that's, that will be perhaps the biggest diplomatic blow to the Ukrainians that we have yet seen. We'll see if they manage to fall further. But the Russians are likely to move in very slowly, very methodically. But up until now, uh, uh, we haven't seen any action in the north of Ukraine. We've barely seen much action in the east. We've seen the Donbass, but nothing to the north of Kharkov. Like what we saw when the war began, when the Russians really came in from essentially every angle that they bordered Ukraine from. The Russians have the manpower to do that again. Uh, they well, I mean, in a more effective manner. They did it before. It's just that it was very swift, and there was very little resistance at first. So it looked like they controlled more area than they really did, and more area certainly than they were effectively capable of holding onto, which is why they fell back. But the fact that they chose to lead the North, and we can now confirm that this was a withdrawal as per that treaty, rather than some great Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, strengthens my point that I made early on in the war, which is that where the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians can't force them out. Which is now again being proven not just by that draft treaty where the Russians chose to leave as per the treaty, but now with the counteroffensive, we're, we're in week, what, four? And... There's no talk of the offensive. There's no talk of the offensive. We're, we're talking about a pause in the offensive. That, that, that was the word on the street last week. And then there's no word to be had now. There's just one distraction from the next so that we don't look at the fact that the Ukrainians have failed miserably. And that they've lost uh, t- thirteen to 15,000 men. At, and that's from the Russians intercepting Ukrainian communications. So, where the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians can't force them out. But when the Russians choose to move, the Ukrainians have a, a difficult time if they're being pressed from multiple angles. And the Russians have plenty of manpower to press them from a lot of different angles. When this conflict gets frozen, if it gets frozen, and I think it might, as per these statements from uh, Medvedev, it's not going to be frozen at the current border. I don't even think it'll be frozen at the Dnieper. I think it's going to be frozen someplace uh, at some line along the western border of Ukraine. Well, not the western border, but in the west of Ukraine, you know. Somewhere between Lviv and Kiev is where the, the new border is going to stabilize at, probably along some river, some nice, comfortable, physical barrier that can very clearly and very cleanly demarcate where Ukraine ends and where Russia begins, you know, Ukraine will be a rump state in uh, an even greater capacity than people imagine if Russia just takes the Black Sea coastline, which makes Ukraine landlocked. No, I think Ukraine is actually going to shrink from being the size of Texas to being, well, the size of Hungary, basically. Uh, A little larger, perhaps. And then that new frontier is going to be where the Russians sit and just shell Ukraine forever. So they can maintain the, the, the new status quo of, oh, we're not, we're, not, we're not at peace. We're in war and you have a border dispute. We claim the rest of the territory that you own, 
because that used to be a part of the Soviet Union, and we are the successor state to the Soviet Union, as a matter of fact, that used to belong to the Russian Empire. But we're not going to take it, so we're just going to have this permanent conflict of borders, this permanent border dispute, and there's nothing you can do about it. And essentially, it'll be retribution on the part of the Russians for what Ukraine did to the Donbass for eight years, where they sat there and shelled them permanently for eight years while pretending to make peace. The Russians might return the favor as a part of this strategy of denying Ukraine the ability to join NATO by preserving a, a status of border conflict on Ukraine's new frontier, which will be someplace between Lviv and Kiev. It's not going to be the current frontier. Now, why I'm the only one saying that, I can't tell you. I really can't. I guess people still underestimate Russia and have yet to reconcile with the fact that Russia never stopped being a great power. They stopped being a superpower, but never a great power. They've always been a great power since they became one in what, the 1700s, 1600s? So, yeah, that's where this is going to freeze. And I think it's very interesting that Medvedev brings up the possibility of freezing the conflict because before I said the conflict's not going to get frozen. But now that he's saying freeze the conflict, I'm like, okay, well, how, in what way does freezing the conflict benefit Russia? Oh, they don't want the Western parts of Ukraine, but they also don't want Ukraine to become part of NATO. So if you don't want to f fully annex all of Ukraine, but you also don't want the weakened and sh very, very much smaller state of Ukraine that's going to be left when this is over, you don't want them to join NATO, well, you take what you want, the uh, 70 to 80%. And then you stay in a permanent state of conflict with the other 20 to 30% of Ukraine, you know, territory wise, not necessarily population wise. And now Ukraine is weak. They're a rump state. You have all the Russian speakers. You have all this very fertile land and resources. You have the entire Black Sea coast. The entire northern half of the Black Sea is now uh, essentially a Russian lake. And you have all the Dnieper. You have the entire Dnieper River Valley. All right, so that's great for you. That's great for Russia. That's great for Belarus. You have more lands to settle. You have more people because you've annexed uh, essentially two-thirds to 80% of Ukraine. And now you're larger. You're stronger. You have, you've now protected all the Russians, the ethnic Russians. And Russia considers Ukrainians ethnic Russians as well. But now you also exclude the undesirables in the far west of Ukraine who are the most hostile demographic in Ukraine to Russia. And then you stay in a permanent state of conflict so that those people who are hostile to you cannot join NATO, or unless NATO changes its policy. In which case, you're already in a state of war, so you can just sweep in and destroy them in an instant. And there's nothing NATO can do about it. They won't be fast enough. And I think that that's what we'd really be looking at if the conflict did freeze, the Russians are not going to freeze it where the border stands, because that leaves too many questions unresolved. Too many security issues for the Russians would be left unresolved if they froze the conflict where the border stands. They're going to push west. They're going to push west. And I think that if a freeze is in the works, it's going to be something along the lines of what I've just described to you. Especially now that you have someone like Medvedev talking about a potential freeze in the context of we don't really want to annex the western parts of Ukraine. So that's something to look out for. Something to look out for.
So it's a sort of walk back from the total annexation of Ukraine, but it does leave open the possibility at some later point, if Ukraine does try to join NATO, of just annexing them immediately because there won't be much left to annex. Russia will have taken everything else. It'd be like it'd be like America swooping in to annex Kentucky. <laughs> it, well, there isn't too much left to annex there, buddy. So, and that's not me knocking Kentucky. I'm just saying compared to the size of the broader United States, it, well, you could do that very quickly, especially with an enlarged military force of say I don't know one and a half million men, or in Russia's case, one point seven, almost one point eight million men. So there's that. Uh, uh, but that's not all that Medvedev said uh, when he said that his goal was to eliminate the threat of Ukraine as a mem- the eliminate the threat of Ukraine joining NATO, and essentially to r- reduce the threat of NATO stepping in by maintaining a permanent state of war between Russia and Ukraine. But he also continued by saying that the confrontation will be very long. He says, uh, uh, let me see this, let me see this. I think I skipped a piece. He says the conversation will be, will be very long, although another piece of this might conflict that. It's not from him, it's from uh, the American side of this. But he said, given NATO's rule about not admitting countries entangled in territorial conflicts, he says the war with Ukraine could become permanent. And given its existential nature for Moscow, and this is the continuation of what he said, given its existential nature for Moscow, the only way to de-escalate tensions between Russia and the West was to enter into tough negotiations. And he's talking about peace negotiations, not just between Russia and Ukraine, but negotiations about European security. Because before the war, and this is something Scott Ritter has been harping on since the beginning, Before the war, Russia put out those series of proposals for a new European security framework, essentially pushing back NATO military infrastructure back to Germany instead of having them in Eastern Europe. And yeah, including Russia's security concerns in the broader picture of European security because Russia is a European nation. And that just goes to show how unstable this whole purpose of NATO is the, the keep the Russians, keep the Germans down, keep the Russians out and keep the Americans in. It's unstable. Russia is a European country, the largest European state in size and population. And they're always going to be there. They're the most powerful European state. Germany is the second most powerful and most populous European state after Russia. They're already dominant economically and financially. You can't keep them down forever. They're dominant politically as well because it's the Germans who run the EU and the Germans who run Germany and Germany's economy really dictates the flow of the EU. You can't keep them down forever. They live there and they're a major player. And at the end of the day, America's is not America is not a European country. I, I really don't know what to tell you. Look at a map. You can't keep America in forever. It's unstable. It's how we lasted this long is a mystery. But the idea that it's going to last forever is asinine, in my view, especially observing what we're witnessing today, these massive once-in-a-century changes that are going on. But 
he says. Uh, uh, but again, going back to that de-escalation thing, it's not just between Russia and Ukraine, it's between Russia and the West. There needs to be a new European security framework, preferably one that doesn't include the United States. But uh, hey, but he's right. We can't continue. The, the, the Cold War order doesn't work anymore, where it's the West versus the East, NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact doesn't exist anymore. The Soviet Union is gone. NATO can't keep expanding to the further east because now you're at Russia's door. And Russia's door got rolled back by thousands of miles. Well, not thousands, but a thousand miles. They used to be in East Germany. Halfway through Germany was the, was the Russian frontier. Now that the Russians don't even have Ukraine. They just barely have Belarus by way of the Union state. But uh, hundreds of miles, the Russian frontier got rolled back and NATO still found their way to Russia's door. Something's not right. This You can't go on this way. There has to be something new. There has to be a, a, a concert of Europe again. Now, whether or not the Europeans will have the maturity to deal with that, the French might at some point maybe possibly come around to that. Although I think it's really going to be Hungary. I think it's going to be Hungary. The second Hungary has a border with Russia. You're going, to be, you're going to see them switch up so unbelievably fast, it'll make your head spin. Because <laughs> then once they have a land border with Russia, they can, they can join the BRICS. They can join the SCO. They can join the Belt and Road. And they can do all these things that they can't do because they are landlocked, not just physically, but politically. They're covered on all sides by NATO nations and then Ukraine. But Ukraine might be their way out. Might. It depends on what the Russians do. Uh, if you if Russia takes all of Ukraine, Hungary has an out. If they don't, well, Hungary's going to be stuck. But again, that also depends on how Ukraine behaves. Because it's very possible that West Ukraine might get tired of war with Russia, and they might switch up. And they, they, they still won't like Russia. But they'll see that fighting a war with Russia will only lead to their annihilation. And they'll eventually concede to a sort of subservience to Russia. And that's going to happen. They could have had neutrality, but the way this is going to end, it's probably going to be subservience to Russia. And if Ukraine becomes a, essentially a, a client state of the Russians, well, then that leaves a land corridor between Russia and Hungary that Hungary can exploit. Now, will Italy come on side? Perhaps. They don't really have much skin in the game other than sentiments. All it would take is another leader who really doesn't care about Eastern Europe. And the Italians will switch up very quickly. So then what does Britain and France do? France teeters on going to the, the multipolar world order and staying in the liberal world order. At some point, they're going to teeter far enough to the other side to actually do something useful. And the British, at some point, might maybe possibly remember that they left the EU and actually engage with the rest of the world. So it's a possibility. It's a, a new European security framework, a new concert of Europe. It's a possibility. It's just probably going to have to be an issue that is forced by catastrophic defeat in this war. Defeat on the part of NATO, not Russia. So we will see. We will see. Uh, but Medvedev says that this confrontation will be very long and it's too late to tame the recalcitrants. And he's talking about NATO and the U.S. 
So he's saying that they need to be defeated. And by they, he means us. Uh, and if you see the position rushes in, you'll know why. But he, uh, essentially he has come to the same decision that Putin did back in December when Putin did that remilitarization, that second mobilization wave that back in December uh, when Russia called up half a million men. And these are remilitar. This is a remilitarization. So these, that half a million is likely going to stay in the Russian army, even after the war in Ukraine is over. So at a bare minimum, you're looking at a Russian military force of around 1.2 to 1.3 million men when the war is over. That's their new peacetime force. So Putin's come to this decision. Medvedev is now openly talking about this decision, this decision that confrontation with the West is unavoidable and that it's going to be a long drawn out affair for which Russia needs to prepare. And so they are not just with the the troops, but with their economy, they've retooled their economy, their trade away from the West and towards the East, towards the Middle East, towards Africa. And now they're, they're gearing up for a prolonged military confront conflict and confrontation with the West uh, in terms of a Cold War style, but I don't think it's going to go the way the same, uh, the, I don't think it's going to go the same way as the last Cold War did. I don't think it will. And uh, largely because we don't have the same restraint that we did during the Cold War. The Russians do. In fact, they have even more restraint and patience than they did during the Cold War. It's us. We've gone off the deep end, and we think fighting a war with Russia and China at the same time is a good idea. Uh, and I say that with great confidence, not just after having observed the actions of my government over these past year, over the past year and a half, and for a few years before that, when I was really getting into the into the the trenches with geopolitics, and this is going before I even started my podcast, where I went from being a hobby to a, a full time obsession. <laughs> yeah, but just not just going off the the actions and the statements of my government for the past five to six to 10 years, but looking at them now, it's, it's astonishing where we've gotten to because, uh, I really don't even know what to say. So I'll just read to you what these two light bulbs have to say about the situation in Ukraine. People like Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal. These two U.S. senators warned that if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon or damages a nuclear power plant, there there will be war with NATO. They actually said this. Uh, If you don't believe me, I will quote them verbatim. Senator Graham said, quote, Senator Blumenthal and I... Lindsey Graham, want to put everybody in this body, in this Congress, on notice that the threat of a use of a nuclear device by Russia is real, and the best way to deter it is to give them clarity, the Russians, as to what happens if they do that. They will be in a war with NATO. That's what Lindsey Graham said out of his own mouth, that if Russia uses a nuclear device, then there will be war with NATO. Russia will be at war with NATO, even though Ukraine is not a, uh, a NATO member. Senator Blumenthal then chipped in 
and found a way to make Lindsey Graham sound like the reasonable one in the room. Because what, Lin- because what Blumenthal had to say was even worse. He said, quote, Poland is at immediate risk if the use of tactical nuclear weapons or destruction of a nuclear power plant causes radiation to spread as almost certainly it would, causing significant human harm. This is not a kind of reckless or panicky resolution. It is based on fact and science. And it is meant to send a message to Vladimir Putin and even more directly to his military. They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated if they use tactical nuclear weapons or if they destroy a nuclear power plant in a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations. Article 5 is there for a reason. End quote. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the Russians, uh, I just read to you what they think. They think this is going to be a long-term standoff. But if these two uh, freak if these two freak shows in our Senate have their way, we'll all be dead in 24 hours. So the Russians are, uh, they don't have anything to worry about. They don't need to prepare for a long-term standoff. They just need to sharpen the spears of their nuclear uh, annihilation weapons. I say nuclear deterrent, but we're not all that deterred, now are we? Yeah, this is terrible. These people will actually get us killed. And my line of thinking is this, and I, uh, I hope you caught that when he was talking about the conditions, when he said if Russia used a a nuke or if they attacked a nuclear power plant, remember that. Because, and my line of thinking, when I say that these people are gonna get us into war and they're gonna get us killed in 24 hours flat, uh, my line of thinking is this. We know Ukraine is a, a nuclear terrorist state on the grounds that they have attacked multiple nuclear facilities ranging from power plants in Chernobyl and Kherson, nuclear power plants, and most notably the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which they are still attacking to this day, and blaming on the Russians, of course, as well as the attacks on a Russian airbase, the Engels airbase, which was known to house numerous nuclear warheads. And we won't even get into the attempted decapitation strikes in the Kremlin, which possibly could have set off the dead hand system which would have killed everybody on the planet just by the automated response going off and then launching the, all of Russia's nukes at all of Russia's targets. They could have actually killed everybody with their attacks on the Kremlin. So given that they are an established, an established nuclear terrorist state, and given that we also know that the propaganda press has an established pattern of behavior that results in them lying in such a way that they blame Russia for things that Ukraine does. And my examples on that is those missiles that landed in Poland, killing two Polish farmers last year, which were actually Ukrainian missiles. Uh, The attacks on Chernobyl and Zaporizhia power plants. Chernobyl happened when the war began, which is why a lot of people don't really talk about that one. But they do talk about the attacks on the Zaporizhia power plant and the partial destruction of the Novaya Kokovka Dam. All Ukrainian actions, which are blamed on Russia by the propaganda press. 
So when you pair that, the established patterns of behavior of Ukraine as a nuclear terrorist state, the patterns of behavior of the propaganda press in lying on the, for Ukraine and blaming what Ukraine does on Russia, when you pair that with this overt willingness of Western nations, particularly the U.S. and the U.K., toward giving Ukraine weapons that they really shouldn't have, like depleted uranium shells and bullets, then what you get is not a deterrent. These statements that Graham and Blumenthal made, this is not a deterrent. What it is instead is a direct pathway for a direct military intervention in Ukraine by the U.S. and NATO. Because if, again, going back, what did he say? What did Blumenthal say? He said, quote, if a tactical nuclear weapon is used or, in this case, more relevantly, if a nuclear power plant is destroyed in, again, quote, a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations, end quote, and you can define that threat however you want, then there will be war with NATO. He said that. He said that. Article 5 is there for a reason. He is openly saying, I I think I fucked up the quote, uh, even though I have it written down, but he is saying that if uh, something happens to the power plant or if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, that they're going to call NATO in on this. He said it. He said that this is meant to be uh, a threat. He said that it's meant to send a message to Putin, but more directly to his military. They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated if they use tactical nuclear weapons or if they destroy a nuclear power plant in a way that threatens surrounding NATO nations. Article 5 is there for a reason. That is his words. So if you combine that statement... A tactical nuke or if they attack a nuclear power plant in a way that damages or threatens surrounding NATO nations, if you combine that with the fact that Ukraine is actively attacking a nuclear power plant right now and the fact that the propaganda press lies for Ukraine and blames Ukraine's actions on Russia, he has actually not threatened anything other than a direct intervention of NATO into the war. In fact, he's not even threatening it. He's saying that it's going to happen. Because what do you think happens at at a certain point? The Ukrainians are going to do some critical damage to this power plant unless the Russians can push them far enough away to where they can't hit it anymore. And we don't know when that's going to happen. They can do it if they chose to, but we don't know when. The Russians are content with defense right now. We, it's... It, that is, I'm tripping over my words. Because what am I supposed to say to that? They will be destroyed. They will be eviscerated. You are threatening to use, you are threatening to destroy Russian military formations. That is war. That is war. Article 5 is there for a reason that he is literally calling for war. And if Ukraine is attacking the power plant, 
the media, the propaganda press, says that Russia is the one attacking the power plant that is currently under Russian occupation. And then he says, oh, if Russia attacks the power plant, then uh, NATO can get involved. Then he's saying that NATO is going to get involved. You can see the clear chain of events that's going to come, that's going to transpire, leading up to a direct intervention of NATO into this war. That, that's what he's just told us. He's just told us, hey, we're going to intervene. We're going to intervene. We're going to take Ukraine attacking this power plant. We're going to blame it on you. And then we're going to use the, the damage from the destroyed or the partially destroyed power plant that Ukraine caused, but that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be blamed on you. So we're going to say you did it. And then we're going to use that as justification for Article 5 and get all of NATO involved. It's... Because what is, if for those who don't know, Article 5 of NATO is the collective defense clause where an attack on one state is treated as an attack on all states. Meaning he, if, if, what he's really just told us is that if there just so happens to be a major attack or sabotage of a, of a power plant in, say, I don't know, Zaporizhia, which is conveniently blamed on the Russians, of course, then NATO can say that this threatens its eastern member states like Poland, Hungary, or Romania. And then said eastern states can call on Article 5, the Collective Defense Clause, to bring the entire alliance into a direct shooting war with Russia. This is the insanity that has been looming over this conflict since day one. The prospect of a NATO intervention in Ukraine. This is it. We are on the verge of an actual shooting war between Russia and NATO. Now, I am on record saying that I don't think this is going to go very well for the NATO forces, uh, especially with how much we've depleted our forces in Ukraine, uh, our stocks of ammunition, that is, and given how well the Ukrainians have performed against Russia. The Ukrainians are sort of a a stand-in for NATO, and the Ukrainians weren't doing that well even when they had a numerical superiority, even when the Russian Air Force was nowhere to be found because Ukrainian air defenses were thick. Ukraine has been constantly at a disadvantage in terms of the casualty ratio. I think the casualty ratio will be at least a little bit better <clears throat> with NATO involved because, you know, everyone will be using equipment that they're actually familiar with instead of having to learn on the fly how to use equipment that they've never used before. But if Russia can manhandle Ukraine while outnumbered, because they were outnumbered when the war began, if Russia can manhandle Ukraine while outnumbered, and now we can see that they are fully capable of annihilating Western military equipment, so this era of superiority that we went into this war with for whatever reason, I don't know how that manifested, because before it was we were equals, and our equipment was equal, and then it suddenly became, oh, our equipment, our high-end equipment is too top of the line, too top of the line for you. You, you can't handle this top-notch equipment. And then they have 20 destroyed Leopard 2s. <clears throat> Excuse me. This isn't going to go very well for NATO, especially now that we've invested so heavily in Ukraine. Like a while back, I speculated, and some of you will remember this, my longtime listeners, some of you will remember way back, and I think it was in like January or February, 
where I speculated on why Russia was taking its time with the conflict and why they had mobilized as many men as they did and, and primarily why they hadn't done an offensive of their own because I was expecting the winter offensive back in sometime late November, early December, uh, maybe by the end of December, oh, when the ground hardens, I was expecting the Russian winter offensive. I thought it was going to get lit <laughs> for uh, perhaps lack of a better term. And then it didn't happen. So then I had to sit and ask, okay, well, why didn't that happen? And among other things that I concluded, one being that they have more to gain from prolonging the war, because the longer the war goes on, more NATO equipment flows in, and more NATO equipment flows in, the more NATO equipment you can destroy without actually fighting NATO. So among other things, I concluded that Russia was taking its time because they were preparing not for a war with Ukraine, but for a war with NATO. Because when you look at, because I, I was looking at the numbers of men they mobilized. And I'm like, why, why did you mobilize all these men? There's no way you need a million men to just jump Ukraine from all sides. That, that seemed pretty contrary to the way the Russians had been running the war up till that point. Especially with their emphasis on really not wanting to destroy Ukraine as a functional state and not wanting to cause civilian casualties, which you would do if, if you sent in a force that large and just started steamrolling everything in your path. So it seemed contrary to me that the Russians would mobilize a force of a million men just to fight the Ukrainians. And that's just from the people that are mobilized, because again, Russia had three quarters of a million in active duty before the war. So it seemed off to me that you would need a million men to do something that you're really capable of doing with like half that number, like half, the first mobilization in October probably could have got the job done. Even if all of them weren't necessarily combat troops, but more logistics, that would have been enough. That would, that would have been enough. But the extra half a million in December, I'm like, okay, that's a bit overkill. Um, cause you were already at a million with the first mobilization wave. Now you're at a, a mil 1.6 million with the remilitarization in December. Now, of course, I wasn't taking into account that the December E, the December mobilities had to train. But the October ones, uh, they were training, of course, but a lot of them were reservists, and some of whom had already seen combat in the war before being, you know, rotated out of service. So they're reservists, not full-time active duty. So I'm like, okay, certainly those forces would have been enough. So where's the Russian offensive? But I concluded that the million plus men that had been mobilized, uh, ultimately they were not for Ukraine. They were mobilized preemptively in case of NATO doing something unbelievably stupid, you know, something like, I don't know, a direct intervention in Ukraine. If Russia waited, and this is my logic here, if Russia had waited until now to mobilize these men, now that NATO is saying and talking about direct intervention, it would have been too late. It would take too long to get the, these men combat ready, and then you'd essentially be sending inexperienced troops against NATO armies 
which would put you into a grinding war with NATO that you'd be at a partial disadvantage with. Because then you'd be mobilizing at the same time they're mobilizing, meaning you can't really gain the advantage like you could if you were prepared for the war and they weren't because NATO isn't mobilized. We can't mobilize until after we get involved. But Russia's already involved, meaning they can mobilize. They can call up a million men preemptively and they can train them for months on end specifically to fight the conflict that is being fought. They can train these men to fight today's war, not training them on how to fight yesterday's war or how to fight a bandit in Afghanistan. They can train them on modern tactics, uh, like the top of the line, the cutting edge, things that are actually relevant to this conflict, this the largest conflict fought since World War II, unless you want to count the Chinese Civil War, but certainly the largest conflict in Europe since the Second World War. So I'm like, okay, they're not for Ukraine, they're for NATO. And this is in this is like a break glass in case of emergency type force. Because eventually they're going to deploy some of them to help finish off Ukraine. But you don't need the other half a million for that. What are the, the other half a million for that? Why were they mobilized? Why did Russia mil- remilitarize back in December? Because Putin was preparing for a long-term standoff with the West. That was the reason behind the mobilization wave back in December. So if you combine that with the fact that they've taken this very slowly, they're waiting. They were waiting for those troops in December that they mobilized in December to be combat ready. By this point, I'm sure that they are. I mean, they've had a good six months to train again for the conditions that exist in today's war, not yesterday's war, but actual modern conflict in the way that is being fought right now in Ukraine, meaning that the training that they're receiving is the most relevant training in the world right now in terms of the conflict that Russia is likely to fight. NATO has yet to adjust because NATO still believes that Russia's losing. So we're learning nothing while the Russians are learning everything. And other countries are probably going to follow suit. And now here we are, where NATO is actually openly speaking of a direct intervention in Ukraine. Lindsey Graham and Blumenthal just laid out the exact pathway by which Ukraine can instigate an event to drive NATO into the war. All Ukraine has to do is sabotage a nuclear power plant somewhere in Russia's control. Maybe even maybe even a nuclear power plant under their own control and just blame it on the Russians. Because, again, it said a nuclear power plant, not necessarily the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. If the Ukrainians get desperate, they can blow up one of their own power plants somewhere deeper in Ukraine itself and then blame it on a Russian missile strike. The news isn't going to correct them. The news is going to say, oh, look, the Russians blew up this power plant. I guess now NATO and that endangers. Look at how it endangers all these other NATO countries. NATO has to do something about the war in Russia, about the war in Ukraine, excuse me. NATO has to do something about Russia and Russian aggression. You you can already see it. They have laid out the path, not the off-ramp, but the on-ramp for NATO to get involved directly into the war. But this is what Russia was preparing for. For months, they've been preparing for this possibility. 
Because if Russia went in and crushed Ukraine, there was the possibility that NATO jumps in as a sort of panic response to try to save something of Ukraine. And then they start getting blown up by Russian artillery. And now you have a direct shooting war between Russia and NATO. But if Russia has another half a million men on standby when that happens, well, then it doesn't really matter because you can just deploy them and now all your bases are covered. Now everything's covered. You've already bribed Turkey away from the U.S. sphere of influence. I don't think Turkey would join us in a war against Russia. Turkey doesn't even have a, a border with Russia anyway. Not really. So what does that leave? It leaves Finland, the Baltics, Poland, Hungary, Romania. The Baltics are going to get eaten alive. The Baltics will be eaten alive. The Russians have half a million troops. The Finns are going to get eaten alive. The Russians have an army group up there that they've mobilized. It, it, it really won't go well for NATO. We are not prepared to fight on a front that large, but the Russians have mobilized enough men to where they can. And that's before you count the Belarusian military, who will also be an active participant in the fighting. Because it's Russia. It is one and the same with Russia, effectively. Russia's prepared to fight this war. We're not. So the fact that these people, these incredibly irresponsible people, are talking about getting us in to that war is insane. It's insane. And it's not going to go well for us because we've depleted so much of our crucial ammunition reserves because we gave it all, all the way to Ukraine. Huh. So much for Cold War 2.0. Looks like we're all going to we're going to wake up at war with Russia one day. And then we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.